Amen. Well, church family, if you would turn to Exodus 39 as we continue our study of Exodus this Lord's Day. And as you turn there, uh, you may remember uh, just a few weeks back we were talking about uh, that picture of generous giving that we see in the Scripture. And I shared just a practical example, a need we had uh, was uh, a student who was going to be doing a summer mission this summer, Cameron Roby. And, uh, and you guys answered that need very quickly. And so Cameron is here this morning. Cameron, if you'll come on up, uh, he is going to be heading out to that summer mission pretty soon. But he just wanted to say a word of thanks uh, to us this morning. So Cameron. Just to see the um, support that you guys have given me over these last several weeks has been awesome. Um, I want you guys to know that one of the things that we do at Crew, we call our um, support is MPD, which shortly stands for Mission Partner Development. And as we go out over these next two months in Gatlinburg, we witness to those students who may have never even heard the name of the gospel that Brother Richard is about to speak today that you guys are going to be right there alongside of us. And it's because that you guys have allowed us to go through our funding that people who have been from what we call a 1040 uh, window have never heard the gospel, would hear the gospel for the first time. And may, uh, because of the work that you guys have provided, the work that we do for the first time, hear the gospel and accept Christ. Thank you guys once again. And I'm very glad to be a part of a church that, again, is so much mission-minded. If you'll stay up here, Cameron, I'm going to pray for you real quick. As Cameron was mentioning, for you guys who've been to Gatlinburg in the summer, there are students from all over the world that come there to work. And as he was mentioning, many who've never heard the gospel come from places where the gospel isn't proclaimed. So, uh, church, if you'll join me in praying for Cameron and praying for these students who will be uh, missionaries there this summer. Uh, Father God, we do thank you uh, for Cameron. We thank you for the ministry of crew there at EKU. We thank you for... Uh, students like Cameron who will be ministering all over the world this summer and particularly we do pray for him and others that will be there in Gatlinburg. Father, would you use them for your glory? Lord, would you work in the hearts of those they'll be ministering to, especially uh, those internationals who will be coming in to work for the summer? We pray, God, for gospel opportunities, gospel conversations. We pray that you would uh, bless this ministry that you called our church to do alongside Cameron and we lift him up to you, lift up crew to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Cameron. Well, thank you again, church, uh, for your support. You can be praying uh, for Cameron this summer. You can be praying for uh, our son, Parker. Uh, he'll be getting home uh, later today and then heading out Tuesday. He'll be uh, summer staff at Crossings Ministries at Jonathan Creek over at Land Between the Lakes. And uh, you can be praying for AJ, for Amber Jo Lewis as well. Uh, she has a couple of ministry opportunities internationally this summer, and so we want to be lifting her up. And as well as all our students here, we've got a lot of students who are going to Poland, uh, who are going to camps, and so just keep those folks in prayer throughout the summer. Uh, you Hopefully now we're in Exodus 39, just as a, a reminder, we are at a place in Exodus now where we've been seeing uh, instructions followed. God gave all these instructions about his tabernacle to his people uh, during their exodus. Uh, these are the same people who he had saved from their slavery in Egypt, who he'd taken through the waters of the Red Sea. He's given them the Ten Commandments. He's teaching them how to live in the land of promise. And now he has taught them how to worship him on their way to the land of promise and once they're there. And so today, what we see in Exodus 39, 32 through 43, uh, is the tabernacle is complete and now all the components of it are being brought before Moses so that he might bless them. And so we're going to read Exodus 39, 32 through 43. And if you're able to, at a reverence for God's word, if you'll stand 
as I read this text for us. And this is what the Holy Spirit says through His servant Moses and to His church today. And beginning in verse 32. Thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished. And the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So they did. Then they brought the tabernacle to Moses, the tent, and all its utensils and its hooks, its frames, its bars, its pillars, and its bases, the covering of tanned ram skins and goat skins, and the veil of the screen, the ark of the testimony with its poles and the mercy seat, the table with all its utensils and the bread of presence, the lampstand of pure gold, and its lamp with the lamps set, and all its utensils, and the oil for light, the golden altar, the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense, the screen for the entrance of the tent, the bronze altar, and its grating of bronze, its poles, and all its utensils, the basin and its stand, the hangings of the court, its pillars, and its basins, and the screen for the gate of the court, and its cords, and its pegs, and all the utensils for the service of the tabernacle, for the tent of meeting, the finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments for his sons for their service as priest, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all of the work, and behold, they had done it. And as the Lord commanded, so they had done it. Then Moses blessed them. If you would pray with me, church. Father, we see here once again in Exodus a, a list of things that, that may seem very foreign to many of us, a very particular details that it's easy for us to just graze over and not spend much time on. And yet, Father, there is something to learn here because all of your word is inspired and profitable for us. And so, Lord, would you help us to see how the completion of the tabernacle, how Moses blessing the completion of the tabernacle applies to us today. And Lord, would you do a work that only you can do this morning? Would you open up eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as we have mentioned today, indeed is... Mother's Day, and there's a, a lot of history surrounding this day, and actually that history uh, started in the church. Uh, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, there was a young girl named Anna Jarvis who was growing up in a church in West Virginia. Uh, her mother was her Sunday school teacher, and as her mother taught her Sunday school class, young Anna started to think about a, a way that she could honor not just her mother, but a way that the church could really honor mothers. And so years went by, and around 1907, uh, Anna wore a white carnation to church one Sunday. And when people would ask her about the carnation, uh, she would let them know that that was to honor her mother. Well, that caught on soon. Uh, lots of folks in the church would wear those white carnations once a year to honor their mothers, and that spread to other churches. And then just within a few years, uh, in 1914, Mother's Day became an official national holiday. Well, this was something that initially uh, Anna Jarvis celebrated because all these folks were honoring their mothers, but soon she began to lament it. Because like many holidays, what started as a, a sentimental celebration turned into just an opportunity for profit. 
Now, she got very frustrated with the commercialization of Mother's Day. Now, I know we can't identify with this today, but uh, there were, everybody was trying to make a buck off of Mother's Day then. And she got very frustrated to the point that she began to protest the very holiday that she was a part of founding. In 1923, she sued the U.S. government for them to stop celebrating Mother's Day. Now, she was arrested and put in jail for her protest. And towards the end of her life, it was found that she had spent her entire inheritance and most of the later years of her life fighting against the day that she had actually created as a national holiday. She said this about it. She's speaking of the commercialization of Mother's Day. She said, this is not what I intended. I wanted it to be a day of sentiment, not profit. But what Anna learned, and what we see so often in holidays, especially in our country, is so often uh, people start to focus on profit, they start to uh, focus on commercialization, and they get far away from the original intent of what the day was supposed to be about to begin with. And it's not just holidays. We see this in many areas of life, and we especially see it when it comes to matters of faith and worship. We see it as we come to Exodus 39 in our study of the tabernacle. As you'll recall from our previous studies, the tabernacle existed so that God could dwell among His people. The big question in Exodus is, how can a holy God dwell among an unholy people? And God answers that question by giving very precise details about this tabernacle, the structure, everything that would be in it. And it existed, it was built for God's glory and so that God could dwell among His people. But over the years as they went on, people would begin to forget that intent of the tabernacle, so that by the time we get to the Gospels, we read about Jesus going in to what is now the temple, which is what the tabernacle would become. He goes into the temple, and He's having to cleanse it, because it's so far away from what the original intent was. In fact, we read this in Matthew 21, verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. See, Jesus was frustrated as well with what was originally intended to glorify God was now existing for the profit of man. It had gotten away from the original intent. And this wasn't just a problem in Jesus' day. This is a problem in our day as well. You can go around the globe, you can go around our own nation, and you can find some of the most magnificent-looking cathedrals and buildings and houses of worship, and yet what you often will find in them is the name of God is not honored, and the Word of God is not preached. And many of them exist for the profit of man, not the glory of God. We too have gotten away from the original intent. We too have drifted. And so it's important for us to come back to texts like Exodus 39 to understand not just what was the purpose of the tabernacle, but how does that apply to us today? And specifically, here's the question. There are people who will go into places of worship. Perhaps some of you have come in today and they are looking for hope. They are looking to come into an understanding of who God is and how they might have fellowship with that God. And sadly, where the name of God is not honored, where the Word of God is not preached, they are leaving just as hopeless as they came in. 
And my hope today is that we might see how the Scripture indeed shows us how the tabernacle points to Jesus, how our hope can be found in Jesus, and how this passage, along with many others, points us right to the Gospel of Christ. And so we'll begin that journey through this text with the first point I've put there in your outline. We're reminded in this text, point one, that genuine fellowship with God comes through obedience to His Word. Genuine fellowship with God comes from obedience to His Word. And notice again what we read in verse 32. All the work of the tabernacle of the tent of the meeting was finished. The people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So they did. We see a picture here of God's people following exact instructions that God gave. This is a good word to us. Because a lot of times, we're not so good at following instructions. I mean, some of you, you know, aside from God's Word, maybe you, you have something to build, you get that manual of instructions, and so often, what do you do? Well, I'll just put the manual over here, and I'll build this. I was thinking about this this weekend. We had some friends over and a bunch of kids over at our house, and we've got this playground we built going back, I guess it was about 17 years ago. Parker was one when we built it. And I remember real specifically when I was building this playground, everything was moving along real well until I got to this point of near completion and I got to uh, looking and I thought, man, there's an awful lot of screws left over there. And there's also a bunch of wood left over there. <laughs> Maybe this isn't looking quite like it was supposed to. And sure enough, then I pulled out the instruction manual. Then I realized there was an important step I had skipped. And then I had to undo a ton of what I've done to go back and do it the right way. We're just kind of like that. And the sad reality is, we're not just talking about playgrounds here. We're talking about exact instructions that God has given us that often we ignore. And what we find here in Exodus 39 is that the people are not ignoring it. They're doing exactly what God said. In fact, when you go back and look at the instructions God gives, He gives over 42 specific instructions about the tabernacle. He gives about 20 specific instructions about making the priestly garments. And then when you read here at the end of Exodus, we find the people obeyed every single one of those instructions. And the question is, why? Why are the people now so obedient? And I think the reason is this, that they had learned the hard way that God blesses obedience to His Word, but there is a consequence for disobedience to His Word. See, these people who did all these things so well, they hadn't always been so obedient. In fact, if you go back in our walk through Exodus to Exodus 20 where God gives the Ten Commandments, hey, He gives those first three specific commandments. The first one, Exodus 20 verse 3, you shall have no other gods before Me. Now He gave this for a specific reason. The people of Israel, the Hebrews, had spent hundreds of years, they and their forefathers, in the land of Egypt. And there the people worshipped many false gods. And oftentimes these false gods were in the form of animals. They were cows, bulls, horses, different things. And they would worship. They had thousands of them. And they would make offerings to them. They would trust in those false idols, those false gods for their provision. And it probably appeared to the Hebrews for a while that they were on to something because the Hebrews were suffering 
and the Egyptians were flourishing. But all that changes when God sends Moses and the plagues come upon Egypt. It becomes very clear that the false gods of Egypt were no gods at all. And then when God takes His people out of Egypt, we found that He also wants to take Egypt out of His people. He wants to teach them a new way of life. And so it's important that He says to them, you shall have no other gods before me because He knows that's exactly the land they've been in. A place where people had all kinds of other gods. In fact, the second commandment, Exodus 20 verses 4-6, through 6, says you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything in heaven, on earth, or in the water. He says that He is a jealous God. And so there's not only to be this focus that they're to have one God they worship, but they're not to make any carved images or icons or idols in regards to that God or anything on the earth. And then the third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now why bring these three commandments up? Because as time goes on, they receive that word, that instruction, but they radically disobey it. You get to Exodus 32. And at this point, Moses goes up the mountain of God and he spends, we know, a few different trips up there, at least 40 days. And while he's gone, the people get anxious. As you recall in our study, Moses was the mediator. He was the one who spoke to the people on behalf of God and spoke to God on behalf of the people. Their leader was gone. And they were worried that he might not come back. And so in their anxiety, they began to think, well, he's not here to give us God's word, so, so what can we do? How can we worship God without Moses here to tell us what to do? And they began to think back to their days in Egypt. And they began to think back to those golden statues that the Egyptians worshipped. And then we read this in Exodus 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses had delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. And so the Hebrew people take golden earrings and golden rings and all these things that God had provided for them to have provision in the land of promise, and they begin to melt them down. And the Scripture says they create this golden calf and they begin to worship it. They begin to offer sacrifices to it. And when God sees this, there's a great consequence. In fact, Moses comes down the mountain and he's just enraged at what he sees. And God brings a swift consequence. Thousands of these people who worship falsely, they die. Many, many others are struck with a plague. And so the people had learned from experience what happened when they did not obey God, and now they see the importance of obedience, and now God is blessing them because of their obedience. Now you can imagine the scenario here. As someone is working, for example, on the tabernacle, on the curtains for it, as they are sewing those garments for the priest as they're embroidering those curtains for the tabernacle, those very same people who are doing these things probably have loved ones, maybe a cousin, maybe a spouse, maybe a mother or a father, maybe even a child who died because of their disobedience to God at Mount Sinai. That they are seeing firsthand why they need to obey and they're seeing the blessing of obedience. And friends, this isn't just a picture with a tabernacle. This is a picture throughout the Scripture. God always blesses obedience to His Word. Now, the psalmist writes in Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who delights himself in the law of the Lord, 
And on his law, he meditates day and night. He, he not only meditates on it, he does what it says. And the psalmist says, he bears fruit. Now, Proverbs 16, 20, whoever gives thought to the word will discover good. And blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. In Romans 6, 16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. That this picture of the blessedness of obedience and the consequence of disobedience goes all the way back to the garden where God creates this perfect sanctuary, this perfect tabernacle, this place where He will dwell with His people. And Adam and Eve have perfect fellowship with God, but they disobey Him. And there is a swift consequence of disobedience. It completely severs their fellowship with God. And it brings forth death. And we see as that consequence plays out how death and sin corrupts mankind. We see the effects of the fall throughout the Scripture. But it all leads up to this point where God made a promise in the garden that a Redeemer would come. And we see in the Gospels that Redeemer does come. And that Redeemer is Jesus Christ. And here's how Jesus fits into this blessedness of obedience and curse of disobedience. Jesus is the only one who's able to perfectly obey God. So, the Gospel this morning is not, hey listen, you guys need to start doing what the Bible says and then you'll be blessed. Now go do it. In fact, here's a challenge to you. If you for the next seven days can live a perfect life, and every thought you have is a perfect thought, and every action you have is a perfect action, just for the next seven days, you'll go to heaven. How many people think they could do that for seven days? Be perfect. Seven seconds? Just while you're sitting in the sanctuary? I'm not raising my hand. <laughs> no, we can't be perfect. And so the gospel is not just vow and try harder and do better. No, the gospel is this. You and I fail. You and I sin. You and I aren't perfect. And the Gospel doesn't call us to perfection. The Gospel calls us to trust in the One who is perfection. The Gospel calls us to trust in Jesus because He is the perfect Son of God. He is the One who perfectly obeys. He is the One who fulfills every one of the Ten Commandments. He is the One who is the tabernacle, is the great high priest. Therefore, we should trust in Him. And in trusting in Him, that doesn't mean that we then become perfect. But now we're trusting in the One who is. And now we're motivated to do good works because of our salvation. But our salvation can never be achieved by good works. And so we see here, if we want to have genuine fellowship with God, that starts with obedience to His Word. And the first thing we learn in obedience to His Word is to trust in Christ who perfectly obeyed on our behalf. And so the flip side of this is you will never have genuine fellowship with God as long as you are rebelling against God in sin. As long as you refuse to obey what His Word teaches, you'll never have fellowship with Him. And for a lot of people, they don't want it. <laughs> for a lot of people who are in sin, they're like, listen, I, I don't want fellowship with God. I don't want to have anything to do with God. Well, hear this. He will give you the desire of your heart for eternity. And you will experience what it is to be separated from God for eternity and under His wrath. But the Scripture says there's a better way. 
And it says we can have genuine fellowship with Him through Christ. Through Christ's obedience, through obedience to His Word. Point two, we also learn in this passage that authentic worship, so not just genuine fellowship, authentic worship comes through obedience to His Word. And so if we want to rightly worship God, we need to begin by looking and saying, what does His Word say about worship? And His Word is very precise about worshiping Him. Some of you are familiar with the Puritans in the 16th and 17th century. The Puritans were people who were very committed to the disciplines of walking with the Lord and obeying the Word of God. And one of these Puritans, a Puritan preacher named Richard Rogers, was once asked by someone, why are you people so precise in your religion? In other words, what's the big deal here? Why are you so exact? Why are you so precise? They actually called the Puritans precisionists. Now, why be so precise? And this Puritan preacher said this, because we serve a precise God. And if there's anything we learn about the tabernacle, about God through the tabernacle, it's that we serve a precise God. And, and here's where that comes into play. We see the people of Israel in the Egyptian land surrounded by people worshiping false gods. And as they leave, there seems to be a real true understanding here. We need to worship the right God. Uh, We don't need to worship the sun god Ra. We don't need to throw our babies into a river as a sacrifice. We need to worship the one true God, the God of Israel, the God, the Hebrew God. That's who we worship. We need to worship the right God. I would imagine in this room this morning, if I was to take a survey, we would be in agreement. Oh yeah, we need to worship the right God. We don't worship the God of Islam. We don't worship the God of the Hindus. We, we worship the Christian God. We need to worship the God of the Scriptures. I'm hoping we'd have some agreement here about that. But, but here's where we might have some disagreement. It's not just important that we worship the right God. We need to worship the right God the right way. And the precision that's given in regards to the tabernacle is teaching the people it's not just important that they worshipped the right God. They needed to worship God the right way. And God had laid out for them a very precise path and precise means through which they should worship. And you put that into our context today. Most of us, when we think about worship, and maybe even when we think about faith in general, we think very individualistically. This is about me and God. You worship God your way. I'll worship God my way. We're worshiping the same God. It's all good. You might think of it this way. When I first moved to this area, almost eight years ago now, I'm not very good at directions, especially when it's somewhere I've not been before. And so this was before we had, I had a phone that had a GPS or anything on it. And so I realized that Bloomfield is not a very complicated place direction-wise. I mean, you can go that way, that way, that way, that way. But, you know, we don't have the stoplight with a stop sign now. But, um, but I was going back and forth to Louisville a lot. And I hadn't gone back and forth to Louisville a lot. And there were different hospitals there. And so I had my handy little, some of y'all still have this little Garmin GPS, a little suction cup. You know, stick it up there. It gets hot. It falls down. You put it back up. And I had that in the car. And so I was good. So I was going to Louisville, I had to go to Baptist East and Lifeway and to Norton and Jewish, I just plug all those things in and, and the little Garmin thing and the voice and I just knew exactly where I was going, didn't have any problems. And then one day, I get in the car, start up the road, by this point I figured out you know, which direction to start, 
I started, I had plugged in my directions, my, you know, had the hospitals all in there from before, so I go to turn it on, and it doesn't come on. Well, I don't have any other way, I don't have a map, I don't have a means to know. And so, long story short, I had to go to about three hospitals that day, and if there's some way you could have gotten like an aerial picture of my route to get to those hospitals, it would look kind of like the family circus cartoons. You know, the boy just has to go from here to here, but it's this all over. And I'm pretty sure I was almost to Lexington at one point. I may have crossed the Ohio River. I was all over the place. But eventually, I made it to my destination. Now, what does that have to do with anything? Well, this is the point. We tend to kind of pride ourselves on that. It doesn't matter how you get there as long as you get there. We actually even kind of pride ourselves on find your own path. Find your own way. As long as you arrive at the destination, enjoy the journey. And that becomes a very, very dangerous thought process when we apply it to our worship and to our faith. Because God has given us precise instructions for a reason. Every detail that he gave to the people of God here was for a purpose. Everything in the tabernacle taught the people of God about him. And so if they skip this, if they don't do this the way he said, they are corrupting their understanding of who God is. They are ignoring who God is. And so that's why God gives them things like the Ark of the Testimony with that mercy seat, that, thing, that, that golden box would sit in the Holy of Holies that would represent that the presence of God where He would descend there and dwell with His people. And those sacred items that would go in it. That jar of manna that would remind the people about God's provision. Aaron's staff that would remind the people about God's authority. The covenant, the Ten Commandments that would remind the people about God's covenant with them. That's why it was important that they made that, that table for the bread of presence. It reminded them of God's constant provision for them when they were in the wilderness and He provided the manna. That's why it's important that they had the lampstand of gold just as He described so that they'd be reminded that God indeed was light and in Him there was no darkness at all. Every single item in the tabernacle Every thread of the high priest's garments, they all pointed directly towards understanding who God was and how they might rightly worship God. And so the people here, as they present all these things before Moses, and as they receive this blessing from God through Moses, they're understanding that their worship is to be God-centered and not man-centered. And friends, we need that reminder today because we live in a very confusing time. And we live in a time where people tend to talk about church and worship from a very man-centered perspective rather than a God-centered perspective. And so perhaps your conversation today is something like this. Well, well how was church this morning? I don't know. I, I didn't really get anything out of worship. I don't really get much out of it. We tend to think about worship in regards to what we got, what we felt, what we longed for, what experience we had, rather than stepping back, looking at passages like this and realizing, wait, worship's not about what you and I get out of it. It's about what God gets out of it. Friends, you 
are breathing air today because you exist for the glory of God. Now, you might not understand that. And you may not have that in mind, and you may have a total different idea about your life and what purpose it serves. But hear me, if you become a student of this Word, what you will see is you exist and God has given you breath that you might glorify Him. And there is no greater joy this side of eternity than living a life for the glory of God. And that pertains to everything, including our worship. And so if your thought process is about a particular worship style or what songs we sang or what you got or didn't get. It could be you have a fundamental misunderstanding of what worship is for. Or it could be you're just lost and unredeemed and unregenerate and unsaved and you don't understand the gospel. And so you don't have eyes to see, you don't have ears to hear, and you might be thinking, well, I hear you, I see you, but listen... If you haven't been made new by Christ, well, you're not going to get anything out of worship no matter where you go or what you sing. Because when we sing things like, oh, great God of highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart, that's not going to make sense to you. But it makes sense in light of the gospel. Because the gospel teaches us that none is righteous, not even one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are born with a lowly heart. Father, please... Redeem me and give me a new heart. That's what He does through the Gospel. If you not experience that, then you're not going to understand what it means to sing, let no vice or sin remain that resist your holy war. You have loved and purchased me. Make me yours forevermore. Because you don't understand redemption. But when we respond to the Gospel, we understand redemption. We understand that, 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 that we deserved the cross. We deserve to die. All have sinned and the wages of sin is death. But God demonstrated His love toward us, Romans 5.8, that while we were yet sinners, we were still sinners. Christ died for us. He purchased us. He redeemed us on the cross. And He calls us to confess Him as Lord, Romans 10. And believe in our heart that God indeed raised Him from the dead. If you have not responded to that gospel truth, then you will never know what it is to truly worship Him. Nor will you ever receive anything out of worship. But the good news is, as we seek to glorify God through our worship, we do receive something. We receive a constant reminder of the gospel. We receive a constant reminder that our hope needs to be found in Christ and in Christ alone. And that brings us to the third point there in your outline, point three. This text reminds us that the finished work of the tabernacle points us to the finished work of Jesus Christ. The finished work of the tabernacle points us to the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so notice again what we see at the end of this passage. Uh, Moses sees all the work. He sees everything that's been done. The people have finished it all. They bring it before Moses. And the Scripture says, Then Moses blessed them. That that word in the Hebrew means he, he praised the work that had been done. In essence, what Moses does is this. All these components of the tabernacle are placed before him. And Moses looks at it and he says before the people, it is good. It's good. Does that remind you of anything? Go back to Genesis 1. Go back to creation. 
God creates the heavens and the earth and all that dwells in them. He creates man for His glory. He creates all things. And when He goes to rest, He looks at all His creation and He says, it is good. The same thing with the tabernacle. It's good. And it doesn't just end there. We know from the Gospels that Jesus is the one who dwelt among us. That word means tabernacled among us. He is the one who is the tabernacle, is the great high priest. He is the one who is the redemption for our sins. And so when Jesus starts His ministry, not not when He's done, not after He's gone to the cross, not after He's healed the sick, not after He's restored sight to the blind, not after the deaf can now hear, not after the dead can now live, but at the very beginning of His ministry, when the only thing we really have recorded so far is very little detail about His youth, and then He's being baptized by His cousin John, at that very moment, the Scripture tells us that God makes a declaration This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. In essence, God looks at His Son and says, He is good. And when we trust in Christ and we turn from our sin, then He invites us in to bear good fruit, to do good works, to live for the common good, to spread the good news, to be of good courage. And Here's the frustration. (laughs) You and I struggle to do those things. Today is Mother's Day. Today is a joyful day for some. Today is a painful day for others. And, And for some, today is a reminder that that your mom wasn't perfect. And for some, it's a reminder that you as a mom aren't perfect. Now, I can't speak as a mother here, but I can speak as a father. Father's Day for me is a day when I feel like a pretty big hypocrite. See, I can get up here and I can choose which stories to tell you. I can pick the chapter of the book of my life to share with you. But I go home and my kids get the unabridged autobiography. And they know my faults and they know my failures. And they know my shortcomings and they know my sin. And maybe for some of you as a mom, maybe you identify that with that a little bit and you see that, that you know, maybe today, it's, again, maybe this didn't happen to anybody, but you know, this is Mother's Day, but on the way to church, maybe it wasn't singing uh, Amazing Grace, maybe it was, it's Mother's Day, why couldn't you get ready on time? I just cleaned that dress. How did you get chocolate? We didn't have chocolate for breakfast. Oh, by the way, thank you for using all the hot water this morning. I really enjoy cold showers on Mother's Day. And then we walk in. (laughs) Happy Mother's Day. Oh, thank you so much. Listen, guys, nobody's going to get to heaven because they were the perfect mother. And nobody's going to get to heaven because they were the perfect father. We will go to heaven because we trust in a perfect Savior. That's the hope this Mother's Day. And that's the hope on Father's Day. And that's the hope every Lord's Day. And what we see here in the tabernacle is it's all pointing towards this. Don't lose hope. Moms, for some of you, today is a struggle 
And you're tempted to lose hope because maybe you've got kids who aren't here today and they don't want anything to do with the Lord today. And maybe you've experienced the pain and the suffering that can come along with parenthood and motherhood. And maybe you've tried to do it the right way and you've tried to be obedient and you've tried to raise your kids in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord and you see us do a family dedication and you're like, you know what? I tried that. I tried it. I tried it. And maybe you're tempted to lose hope because things haven't gone like you thought they would. And that's when we need a course correction and that's when we need the reminder from God's Word. Because I don't have pixie dust for you this morning. But I've got the Word of God. And this is what it says. Galatians 6, 9. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. 2 Thessalonians 3.13 As for you, do not grow weary in doing good. And so the frustrating thing here is it, the Christian life is hard. And, it, and it's difficult. And it's filled with suffering and loss and pain. But don't lose hope. Because we live in... For the glory of a Savior who one day won't just look at our lives and say it is good. (laughs) Who won't look at us when we come to heaven and say, well, your your good outweighed your bad. No, we serve a Savior who one day, according to Revelation 21, He will look at all things and He will say, it is done. It's finished. And I've made everything new. And so in moments of pain and frustration and worry and anxiety, rather than reverting to what we can do and make with our hands like a golden calf, we're called to trust in Christ and what He has done and what He indeed will do. And that glorious day we read about in Revelation 21 where there's no more tears and there's no more death. There's no more loss. There's no more sickness. There's no more worry. No more bills due. No more doctor visits. No more hospitals. He says that He indeed will make all things new. And so on this day, our call is to trust in Him. In Exodus 39, the people bring all these things before Moses, in essence, to pass the inspection. And friends, you realize that if you're in Christ this morning, you've already passed the inspection. His righteousness is yours. His faithfulness is yours. There's nowhere else for us to place our hope. And so this morning, we're going to sing once more about that hope. We're going to offer a time of response. And we invite you during this time just to consider these gospel truths we've spoken of. Do you indeed believe that Jesus is the Son of God? That He went to the cross and died for your sins? that He conquered sin and death, that He has risen from the grave? Do you understand that you exist for His glory, but if you're disobedient to Him this morning, if you've not responded to the Gospel, then you're not living for His glory, you're living for yours. And His call for all of us is to confess Christ as Lord, to believe in our heart God raised Him from the dead, and the Scripture says we will be saved. It's to be of good courage, it's to press on, it's to not grow weary and not lose hope. And so if you'll stand together as we pray, as we sing, that our hope might truly rest in Him.
Father God, we come to You in Jesus' name, and I pray, Lord, for all of us that today our trust would be in Christ. Lord, I am reminded, and I can only imagine others are as well, of my shortcomings, of my faults, of my sins. And I can grow very weary in trying to do good. But Lord, we, we aren't called to do good in order to save ourselves. We're called to trust in the One who is perfect. To do good in light of that salvation Christ offers. And so Father, I pray this morning that we would be putting our trust and our hope in Christ. And if there's any here who's yet to confess Christ as Lord, I pray they would. If there's any here who needs to come and make that profession public today, I pray they would. I pray this was a, wor a work that you would do through the power of your Spirit. And we ask for that in Christ's name. Amen.